chapter 13. I'm going to be starting in verse number 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord... Do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Our Father, I pray that you would meet with us now. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth, the eternal truth presented to us in your word. We pray that these passages that we consider today, that if they are overly familiar to us, that we would not brush them aside, but that we would look at them with new eyes. Each of us are at different places in our life than perhaps the first time we read this passage. We pray that if we've heard messages or perhaps even taught lessons on servanthood, that you would allow us to re-examine, allow us to open up our hearts to see if we truly understand biblical servanthood as you have presented to us and as your son exemplified in his life on the earth. I pray that you would um, strengthen me, allow um, no distractions to come from me, but that uh, I will faithfully discharge the responsibility of preaching your word today. And I thank you for the privilege. I thank you for these people here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we've been moving to this point of adding deacons to our church body here at Grace and Truth, there have been some frequent, frequently used references, at least I feel like I've been saying them a lot. These terms like service, servant, servant leadership. Now what is servant leadership? Now, as I was doing my research for this message, I was surprised because all of my life has been pretty much in deeply Christian areas of thought. My schooling um, was all in Christian schools. My, the philosophy surrounding my life has been very Christian. And I thought servant leadership was a, a Christian term. Now, maybe it had its origins there, and we'll see in the Scriptures. But um, this week, 
a, uh, a local politician, an activist um, named uh, Gretchen Kafori. She died. She served in Portland city government. She was a state representative, and she died. And our current governor, Kate Brown, tweeted this after De- uh, Gretchen Kafori died. It said, uh, Gretchen Kafori really knew what servant leadership means. We will miss her humanity and authenticity. Now, we live in Oregon. We, we know the Bible is not often referenced in government. So I, 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 that, that took me aback. Servant leadership. It kind of jumped out. It was in the Oregonian. And uh, I was like, interesting. Servant leadership. Now, even outside of Scripture, there's also a pretty strong strain in corporate leadership models of servant leadership. Um, an AT&T executive, Robert Greenleaf, in 1970, he wrote a seminal essay called The Servant as Leader. And then he wrote a number of other essays and wrote a book in 1976 on servant leadership. This is when all books were on paper, and you have to check them out at the library. Um, he proposed that best leaders were servants first. He further wrote, and you know, he's in a corporate environment, he believed that an entire institution like a company and even a society, all of us, could act as servant. And the trustees of that institution or the trustees of that company should act as servants. Now, he said although he was informed by his Judeo-Christian ethic, he was a Quaker, he believed that servant leadership was for people of all faiths and all institutions, both secular and religious. Now, what I hope to do today is to go through a few passages to see a few of the things that God's Word says about servanthood for the believer. And as I prayed, I, I hope you heard, I understand that this sort of thing has been perhaps talked about quite a bit. Usually when a church wants you to sign up for something, we, uh, a, a message might be brought about service. But um, while the world at large may have grasped some of the concepts and attributed it to ancient religions, um, Robert Greenleaf talks about the Eastern philosophy or even 20th century management theory, I put forward to you today that this call to servanthood is a call for all believers, not just pastor, elders, or deacons, or teachers, or ministry leaders, all believers. And the leadership part of it is up to God. So we're going to move to multiple scriptures. I may read select verses, but in each case I'm going to put the larger reference in there. I encourage you to write them down um, the, the, the references and incorporate them in your study or your Bible reading this week. We would always encourage you to weigh for yourself what you believe God is saying in his word. And hopefully we are faithful here in the pulpit to present that as well. Here's the main premise of the message. God calls us all to be servants. And God calls us all to the greatness that he considers to be greatness found through the pathway of servanthood. So first of all, there's going to be two main points and then applications. Um, First of all, understanding God's order. Understanding God's order. I believe a foundational start for us is to understand how God views the world. We read allusions in our opening reading in John that will serve us well. I mean, Jesus kind of talked uh, in in that setting about his view of greatness and his view of servanthood. So it kind of puts us, our minds in the right beginning spot for the proper perspective. Because the biblical view of servanthood and servant leadership runs counter to our culture. It runs counter to our values and even that which our souls want to do on, in our own unregenerate state. What we want to do is not biblical servanthood. It's not natural. It doesn't come to us naturally. So the first point, 1A... 
God chose what is low. And we're looking at 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31. I'm going to read 18-31. Uh, the, the excerpt here on the screen is 26-29. Uh, so if you do uh, uh, have your Bibles, go, go ahead and join me there. For the word of the cross, this is Paul speaking, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. <coughs> Verse 26 on the screen, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul is encouraging the Corinthians by saying, remember where you came from. Remember, not many of you were noble or wise or mighty, and God chose you. God chose the foolish to confound the wisdom of the world. Now, what Paul was preaching in 1 Corinthians and what we seek to preach here today is Christ crucified. And we have to remember, we, we say that word a lot. I mean, people wear the cross in jewelry. We see it on the, on the signs. But to the Jews, this was an incredible offense. This is the most heinous way possible for a low person to die, to be crucified. The prejudice against this early church must have been strong because their central figure of their faith was crucified. This was offensive to the Jews. And to the Greeks, it was nonsensical. Nonetheless, we know the power of salvation and the wisdom of God are personified in the Savior, Jesus Christ. The entire message of the cross and the gospel is completely otherworldly. It does not align with any of our natural values that the world has come to adopt. What the world considers wisdom, God has made foolish. God's order is different than ours. Up is down, weak is strong, despised becomes glorified. This calling to humility is intertwined with the outworking evidence of salvation and the work of the cross in our lives. So number 1A, God chose what is low. Moving from that to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. Count others more significant. God's order, God's perspective, and God's economy, we are to count others more significant. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, 
having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Key verse, verses 3 through 7. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In this passage, Paul is calling all Christians to that same calling that he calls the Philippians to here. That all Christians of same love, of one accord, of one mind, should never act out of self-fulfilling ambition or pride. Instead, in Christian humility, we are to consider others more significant than ourselves. Not even of equal or of some redeemable quality, but more significant than ourselves. Significant translated as superior in rank, in authority, and in power. Look to the interests of others, it says in verse 4. This really runs very counter to our culture. And uh, again, you know, I, I do, as I'm preparing for a message, you know, your, your mind's attuned to certain things. And I just saw in the news um, this week a, a study. The headline was, Parents Who Overpraise Their Kids Are Breeding Trouble. Parents who overpraise their kids are breeding trouble. And it's a, a study done by, um, it's in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, a study done by a uh, researcher, Brummelman, in the University of Amsterdam, and a senior uh, author from Ohio State University. So surveying middle-class children, over 500 middle-class children, along with their parents. And it's very interesting, some of the observations that they draw. Parents who overvalue their children, believing that their children are God's gift to man. I hope I'm not bursting any bubbles here today. Parents who believe their children are uh, God's gift to man tend to raise their youngsters with an overblown sense of their own superiority. These are quotes from the study, um, the senior author, uh, Professor Bushman at the Ohio State University. He says, most parents think their children are special and deserve better treatment than others. But when our children receive special treatment, they become narcissistic and come to believe that they deserve more and are superior to others. I honestly believe one of the most dangerous beliefs that a person can have is that they are more superior than others. When people think they are superior to others, they behave very badly. It's much better to treat everybody like we are all part of the human family and are all worthy of respect. Now, in, in contrast, the study found that parents who offered simple warmth reflected in statements such as, I let my child know that I love him or her. Those sorts of parents in this study raised kids who had good self-esteem, but a more realistic understanding of their place in the world. Let's read, look back again to Philippians 3, um, Philippians verse 3 that we read. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. I believe I actually had that on the next slide. Um, the contrast is striking. The, the wisdom of our world is that I am at the center of the world. And that comes naturally, doesn't it? Um, and that study talks about parents maybe building up um, the, the self-interest of a child. But I don't believe any child has to be taught that they're important. I mean, most, most, we, we, we have an innate sense of our own self-importance. And I, I would not say, I mean, the, the study seems like I'm picking on kids. It's not just children that can be narcissistic. Many of us are. Pastors especially have, can fall into a trap of believing that they are the most important, especially within a church. And I don't know if it's a generational thing. If, like, if you grew up on a farm in the early 1900s, you knew you were not the most important person on that, uh, in that family. In any case, Scripture is clear. The example of Christ is unmistakable. The progression of Christ's thoughts as he came to earth is, is, is astounding. He was not only lowering himself to be in a human form. As God, as Almighty God, to be found in human form was already a step down. He could have come as a prince. He could have, could have come as a ruler. But he came as a hand laborer, the son of a carpenter, a Jew, not exactly the most prestigious ethnic group a servant, a subjugated ethnic group, a, a people that were being ruled by another people group. And he died the most humiliating death possible in that time. In God's order, the humble will be lifted up. He who humbled himself, Jesus Christ, to the ultimate death on the cross will be lifted up to the very highest point where every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, the humbled and glorified Son of God, is Lord. We move on to our third passage, Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 and verse number 20 through 28. Servanthood may obviously, intuitively require humility. To serve someone requires humility. We are called to that humility as Christians. We are called to serve others. We are called to esteem others, the King James says, better than ourselves. But in chapter 20 of Matthew, we see further words from Christ on how servanthood is equated with greatness in the kingdom of God. <coughs> Verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten other disciples heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 26, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. 
even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, this is kind of stunning. It's kind of stunning in a bad way. James and John were all in, weren't they? They were disciples. They were following after, after Christ. They understood that the kingdom was coming. Maybe not fully, but they were following after Christ. They believed him to be the Messiah. This is shortly before what we call the Passion Week, the week uh, between Palm Sunday and Christ's death was to take place. So this is the end of the ministry. They knew much. Yet, James and John and their mother took the opportunity to focus on their own places in the coming kingdom. The kingdom that they, that God had given them the sight to see, they looked ahead and was like, I want to be sure that I'm at a certain place of importance in that kingdom. They were presumptuous. They were ambitious. They turned out to be divisive, as we can see from the response of the other disciples. Jesus was no doubt preparing for the coming trial of his life the whole purpose for why he came the testing the torture the path to sacrifice and now this seriously his closest friends are the ones that he gets this sort of reaction from jesus had just told them that he was going to die and then this demand follows in response to this very inappropriate request jesus presented no doubt for the nth time, that his countercultural values were very, very different from theirs. He drew their attention. He contextualized. He drew their attention to the government of their day, the, the ruling class over them, the Romans. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over their people, and their great ones exercised authority over others. But it shall not be so among you. Not in my kingdom, Jesus is saying. The servant will be the greatest. The slave will be the first. And Jesus is the example. The greatest purpose and intent of the Son of Man's advent on earth was not to rule. Although he had the ultimate and greatest claim to that throne, instead of coming to be served, Jesus came to serve and to give, and to give ultimately by giving up his life for a ransom for those who had no hope without him. You know, I mentioned before that the cross, preaching the cross, was, was an offense to the Jews. I mean, they believed in a Messiah, and the message of the gospel was that their Messiah had come, and their Messiah had died the death of a criminal. Everything is backwards in, from a human perspective in God's economy. And Jesus is further exemplifying that reverse sort of value. <clears throat> Excuse me. Got to next time give you a sign like Is there any plain or teaching the path to kingdom greatness or greatness in God's eyes to have high value in God's economy that path to kingdom greatness is by serving and humbling oneself by being a slave to others. Jesus does not speak in hyperbole here. He's not trying to make a point by saying you've you got to go to the lowest point to get to the highest point. We can deduce this from his own example and from other passages. Now, I hope it's obvious that we should not pursue servanthood because we are ambitious to be great. It's not like, um, well, you know, this, this weekend I was um, talking to another parent 
And as, as you may recall, or if you have high school children, you, you know that getting into college can be very competitive. Um, the college application can be very competitive. It's not good enough to have a good GPA. Kids, I'm not trying to freak you out, but it's just competitive. It's not good enough to have a high GPA. You can have all A's and it's not good enough. Now it's about the extracurriculars, about the service work that is done, about the essay. Now, our goal as parents, I'll just say generally, our goal is not for our kids to learn to do charitable work for what they can gain from it. You know, we don't want them to do service projects for what they can gain. When I was talking to this other parent, we were talking about this one area of school where there's a requirement for public service. And, and she was talking about how the kids in that school seemed to do it begrudgingly, as if those that they were serving, and in some cases serving food to people who needed food, they, they felt like those, those people should be honored that they as students were coming to serve them. And then she was talking about another school that she had sent a family member to, and the service was not required. Instead, this other school had a week in the fall of each year where students were kind of embedded into certain charities and, and ate meals um, with, with people who had needs and got to know them. And then the service was voluntary. And in the second school, the participation rate was very high, and the attitude was vastly different because the kids in that school, at least most of them, caught a vision for what they had been given and what they, how they could serve others. And these are not Christian schools. So participation in this charitable work was high. And instead of padding an application, instead of trying to gain something I believe it's important for us to teach young people, especially young people who call Jesus Lord, to understand that their service is not just to make us parents feel good. It's not for their school to gain more funding. It's not even for them to get into a good college. Their service is to the king and the Lord of their life and not for their own good. They are to be his hands and feet as the Casting Crown song goes. In what other ways do we see greatness for ourselves? I'm not going to pick on the kids anymore. Talk about the workplace. Is advancement something that we seek on our own? I know there's very varied jobs here. Um, I'm in software in a, t- a technology company. Is Advancement is something that you think about. You're supposed to be trending upwards. You're not supposed to be... Um, you know, we get ratings each year. You're not supposed to be just kind of plateauing. No, no, your boss does not want to hear, I've kind of reached where I want to be, and I don't want to get any better. I just want to do my job. That's a good way not to do your job anymore involuntarily. Do we seek even to advance by putting other people down? It's all relative, isn't it? The ratings within a group of employees um, you have high performers and low performers. If everyone else in your group, you manage to withhold information from them or ostracize them in some way, not work with them as a team, you're able to make yourself look better by making others look worse. Or do we seek to honor God by serving others? I mean, does the Bible take a sidetrack and, and say, yes, these, these, does, does God say these biblical values are obsolete? In the 21st century workplace, I didn't realize it was going to be like that. And so my call to servanthood no longer applies. Of course not. What Paul and what Jesus taught about the kingdom path to greatness through humble servanthood 
Doesn't it apply to the Silicon Forest just as much as it did back in that time? Do we look at like our CEOs, you know, people like uh, Brian Krasanich and Renee James at Intel? My, my CEO of my company is a man named Art DeGius, uh, Jay Platt, um, the CEO of Platt Electric, Steve Jobs, who has passed, Bill Gates. Do we look at them and envy them and aspire and emulate to be like them? I mean, the, the, the wisdom of this world is not God's wisdom. The wisdom of this world is to advance at any cost. Servanthood is rarely considered as we seek greatness for ourselves. I want to try to, to also speak to those who may stay at home, stay-at-home parents. Now, since I'm not a stay-at-home parent, these are my perspectives. But it seems that with Facebook and Twitter and blogs, we now have the ability for those who are formerly isolated, maybe at home, uh, raising children, educating them. They, we now have the ability to connect to others, and that can be good. And sometimes that connection can also be for taken in a sinful direction. Sometimes our use of that social connection can be to perpetuate a vision of greatness that we might have over the others in our social community. A vision of greatness by comparing our lives to others. It may, it may start out in an edifying manner. It may start out by... Um, but, but it seems like frequently posts on Facebook or Twitter can... Even posts about the things that we're providing for our families, the things that we're able to buy, the things that we're able to feed our families, um, the health choices that we make, the look what I have wrought food pictures that we can take. We can pontificate about our choices about vaccines or hormone food, or we can post pictures of vacations and possessions and achievements. We can even put the hashtag blessed on it when we actually mean hashtag humblebrag or hashtag envy me. Facebook is to the narcissist what hard liquor is to the alcoholic. It's not helpful, to say the least. And I'm not saying that everyone that uses hashtag blessed or makes choices for their family or seeks a promotion even, I'm not saying that they're violating the kingdom path to greatness. But we know and the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to us what our motive is. We know when it is when we're at the workplace and God's timetable is not fast enough for us. And we want to advance. We may feel like God's taken his hand off of us and our path within Intel or Synopsis is just, uh, it's up to us to do this. We, we remove God from the equation. We know, students, when the path to class president isn't as straight or as short as we would like. We know musicians when perhaps the recognition of being on the worship team or not being on the worship team is insufficient. I'm thankful for Josh's leadership in that, that we don't, we, we, we strive for this team to minister. But in a larger church, I know, I know friends who have struggled with, well, I haven't been asked or I want to be or, um, or, or people that are on the team having a much more elevated view of themselves. When our way of being a person, a parent, a student, is greater than anyone else's, when our schooling method is superior to someone else's, we may be seeking to honor ourselves by elevating ourselves. 
we need to remember that servants serve the king. Servants allow the king to determine the time and the place and the magnitude of that elevation. Let the Lord of the feast say, you in the lowly seat in the far back, you come up to this place of honor. As James says, in that path of elevation, of divine God-ordained elevation, there is greatness and there is joy and peace. In that assessment by our Savior, there is true honor. Self-elevation can provide pleasure for a season, but it does not last. Turning now to our applications. Back to the original passage that we opened with, John 13. Our best and clearest example of servanthood is Christ himself. In this account of him washing the disciples' feet. We've recounted his example described by Paul in Philippians of how he humbled himself. We've seen Christ teach in Matthew 20. But the most profound manifestation of true humble servanthood to me is in what Christ did in John 13, especially verses 12 through 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Do we understand what he did? You may have heard this passage exposited in the past. Suffice it to say, they dined differently They walked differently. These were men that walked on dusty roads, wearing sandals. Their feet were nasty. These were people that when they reclined to eat, they were laying down on like chaise lounges, couch type things. And so feet were close to someone else's head. Feet were close to the table. I I dare say that none of us allow our kids to put their feet up on the table during dinner or perhaps at any time. In a normal social environment, in the in this passage in, in John 13, the host would provide servants or slaves to wash the feet of the guests. But perhaps given the nature of this gathering, there was no host and no house slaves to provide this courtesy. Perhaps none of the disciples saw themselves as junior enough. I, I mean, if you know sports team culture, sports teams have rookies that carry the luggage. If the, I don't know if the disciples had like, hey, you're you're the rookie disciple. No one was stepping up to wash the feet of the others. Instead of one person volunteering to serve the others, just no one got washed. Out of all these people that were in attendance at this supper, which person actually had the least reason or the, the greatest standing so that he would not be the one to wash the feet of the others? I mangled that question, but what I'm saying is Jesus had the least reason to wash the feet of the others. Jesus continued, as he did throughout his ministry, to serve others. And in doing so, he demonstrated, he exemplified, and then he explained the profound truth of his actions. Verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, the greatest one in this room, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. This is truth. We serve. We serve others as representatives of Jesus. This kind of person that Jesus describes in John 13 is the kind of person that Jesus wants to represent him. We are to love as he loved. If if you have John 13 in your Bible, look back at verse 1. 
It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's not by accident that this passage opens with this explanation of of Christ's love. This act of washing their feet was just not just an instructive demonstration, a how-to. It was an act of his love, and he loved them to the end. Josh shared this book with me, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, by Tim Lane and Paul Tripp. And there's a chapter on service. And the authors highlight some characteristics of service as motivated by love. And there's very, very interesting observations. I just want to go through three of them. Whether you serve someone, whether you serve biblically, should not be determined by, number one, your circumstances. When we are weighed down by difficulties and circumstances, if we're weighed down by our busyness, our stress, fathers or people who work outside the home, when you come home, you may not want to interact with your children at the level that they wish to interact with you. You may not wish to serve them at that same level of engagement. When we're encumbered and when we're busy and when we're stressed out and we're exhausted, and we have things on our mind and we're overwhelmed, the last thing we want to do is to serve others. We want to be served. Consider where John 13 falls in the timeline. Palm Sunday is happening the next day. Yes, it's a triumphant entry, but it's also the beginning of the end for Jesus. He goes in that very next chapter to enter Jerusalem and then onward to what he knew would be his torture and his death on the cross. Perhaps Jesus might have had a reason not to serve on that night. But Jesus served the others. And he served without self-pity. He didn't serve with a martyr complex of, I'm doing this, but I hope you guys realize, like, one of you should be doing this. He served without a guilt-inducing sigh. There's many ways that we can serve and let people know that we don't really want to serve. Jesus served selflessly, not selfishly. Recognize that the act of humble service from one person to another is a sign of God's grace at work in that person. I've talked about how this call to service is not natural to us. We are naturally narcissistic. We are naturally the centers of our universe. We see God's grace at work when we see one person serving another. God honoring service is not natural. It is instead supernatural. Secondly, whether we serve should not be determined by the worthiness of the recipient. Jesus serves his disciples. And what does the passage say? It includes Judas, the one who would betray him. Jesus served Peter, who would deny him. Jesus serves the other disciples who would melt away in the darkness at the Garden of Gethsemane in less than seven days by their actions, distancing themselves from their Lord. It is very, very natural and wrong for us to assess whether someone is worthy of our efforts for service. If you serve people long enough, be it in a church situation, I might say especially within a body of believers, there will be people for whom you have poured out your life into theirs. There will be people for whom you have sacrificed. And in a moment of perhaps sinful anger and pique on their part, They say, well, you haven't done enough for me. You have ventured into other people's lives seeking to serve them with a genuine heart of love and humility, and they've taken a flamethrower to your heart in return. 
This is a difficult call. Jesus calls us to serve. Jesus calls us to be vulnerable and to minister in each other's lives. In other people's lives that may not deserve it. Jesus calls us to die to ourselves, maybe at the hands of others, and care for others. Jesus can call us to do this because Jesus himself moved into our lives and made himself vulnerable, whether we deserved it or not. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, while we didn't deserve it, Christ died for us. And thirdly, your position, your title, does not determine whether you serve, should not determine whether you serve. Whether you are over someone or under someone should not determine whether you are to serve the other. Consider in John 13, uh, it's farther back. So, uh, in the, it's farther back. John 13, verse number 3. John 13, 3, if you have your Bibles. This, this verse is very, very telling. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, ultimate authority, and that he had come from God, the highest place, and that he was going back to God, the highest place. He rose from supper. He laid aside his garments. He washed their feet. Jesus was at the highest position in the universe, literally, and he served. Philippians said he humbled himself from that very ultimate high place to the death and humiliation of the cross. May we serve God as humble, loving, kingdom-informed servants. Humble, loving, kingdom-informed servants. As, and as God wills, and sees fit, perhaps on earth, to elevate us. May it be according to His will and His timing. Our motivation should not be and must not be to serve so that we might achieve greatness for ourselves, but instead to glorify the One who has given us all good things, to point others who need a Savior to the One who has saved us. We die to ourselves so that He might live through us. This message today was put together because of our occasion of praying over our deacon candidates, our deacons that the church has um, wonderfully affirmed to service. This message today was not just for the deacon candidates to hear. It was not just for the pastors of the church to hear. But this call to service is for each one who bears the name of Christ and follows after Him. Uh, today, we at Grace and Truth... Bible Church are blessed to recognize some people who have exhibited elements of biblical greatness in their biblical servant leadership to our body of believers. I would ask if Mike and Nicole, is Mike out now? <laughs> Mike and Nicole and, and Mark and Ann, if you could come down to these seats, we're not going to ask you to say anything. We'd just like you to to sit and we will have the um, the other pastors that are here I saw Joseph here. The, the other pastors to come forward and um, to pray over you. We recognize their calling as deacons, and we recognize many of the characteristics that we've looked at in these passages. We recognize that God has imbued these folks with humility. We have not seen indications of self-glorifying ambition or elevation. Instead, we are thankful that God has blessed them and in turn, our church with their servant leadership. We honor these servants today, and we praise God for the blessed gift that they are to the church. If I could just take a few moments to speak to the four of you.
three parts to this charge to the deacons. Number one, to love God. Continue on your path of growing in Christ-likeness. Do not allow the service that you give to the church and to God to, to, to distract and to lose that love that you have for your Savior. I think one key understanding is that you recognize that what you undertake today and what you have been doing for the church, you cannot do in your own power. Serving others hurts. Serving others makes you tired. If you lose the love that you have for the Savior, that service will be hollow and become bitter to the taste, eating at your heart. And we pray that God would guard you from that. And we are joyful and call you to continue the growth and the faithfulness that we've already seen in your lives. Secondly, I would charge you to love your families. Different ends of the spectrum, some younger kids, some older kids. But continue to minister to them as God leads you in this, in whatever stage of life you're in. When you have to sacrifice time and energy, and as I mentioned last week, this is, there will be sacrifice. We believe you're called to that. You believe you're called to that. Pray for God's wisdom and leading and for his special care for you and your family. Be examples of servanthood to your children. Let them see you being the, Christ's hands and feet. Let them see you loving without condition. Let them see you serving as Christ served us. And thirdly, these are all obvious, but thirdly, love the church. You know, one of the passages I read talked about being of the same mind, the same love, and of one accord with one another. Seek harmony and peace and joy within the body of believers that we are here. Our love for one another grows in our sacrificial acts of love. You may not see someone here, you may not see someone at work or somebody at a play date or someone in another walk of life who sees your act of service and recognizes sacrificial love and recognizes, even as an unbeliever might, that this is not natural. To esteem others more important than yourselves, to serve without seeking recognition or elevation. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, because you have love one for another. Your service to the church has been in love, and we are thankful and honored that we are able to install you as deacons today to continue to, to exemplify for us what biblical servanthood is. At this time, the, the elders, I guess we'll start at that end, if you grab that mic, will pray over you, and we encourage you to join with us in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we are here today because you gave up the glory that was yours. You set aside the, the position that you held at the Father's right hand. You took on the form of human flesh. You lived a perfectly sinless life in our place. You humbled Yourself to 
the death that we deserve in our place. And because of that, we are here today. You have gathered this group of ransomed sinners to be a testimony of Your sovereign grace. You have brought together this church. You've gathered us together that we might corporately worship and make known the greatness of Your name. You've gathered us together as a church that we might accomplish together the the great commission to advance the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth, beginning right here. And you have gathered together these servants to serve this body, to assist us in the fulfillment of that mission. I thank You for these four individuals, for Mark and for Anne, for Mike and for Nicole. You have not only brought them to Yourself in salvation, You have gifted them with a heart of service to others. Their service to this church does not begin today. It is, this is merely a continuation of the service that they have already faithfully demonstrated for this church. You have used each one of these four individuals to touch the lives of of the rest of us in genuine and meaningful ways. We thank You for their service to this church, the service to this body. And I pray as, as Tim just challenged them, that You would continue to grow in them a, a love for You. That they would not grow complacent in their relationship with You. That every day they would grow deeper and deeper in their knowledge of You and Your Word. And thereby be energized for the work that You have called them to. Pray that You would use and continue to use their faithfulness in the life of this church. Use them in the ways that they are already serving, the the ministries they are leading, the needs 
that they are meeting. Continue to use them in those ways and, and even open their eyes and our eyes to ways that they can be of even greater service and ministry for the sake of Your name. We pray that their service to our church would truly be a means by which our ability to advance the Gospel is, is strengthened. And your name is made known not only in this place, but in our community, our city, because of the service of, of these servants and others that You will raise up. Father, we're excited to come to this day. It feels like this was a long time in coming, and the road here feels particularly long, but we thank you that you've brought us to recognizing the call of these four to be added to the office of deacon, joining Steve in serving you in the context of this body. Thank you for the many evidences of your grace that I see in them, in their character, and in their service. I thank you that I see, even as we heard today, a humility in their service, that they do not seek to lord it over other people, but following our Savior's example, esteem others better than themselves and, and seek to humbly serve. And I pray that that would continue, Lord, in these, in these four and in all, Lord, in our body that would serve, that we would lovingly submit to each other in love, mutually recognizing the work you're doing in others as well as in us. And I pray that you would remind us all, remind them that our ability to serve is only ultimately because of how we have been served by a great Savior. We can't serve in our own strength. We will fall short. We will have the wrong motivations for service that will be self-oriented rather than God and others oriented. So I pray that you would protect Nicole and Mike and Anne and Mark from, from that temptation. I pray, as Chad prayed, that through the addition of, of deacons that you would see fit to do even more, Lord, in our midst and in our community and that the advance of the gospel from Grace and Truth Bible Church would be increased. That the elders would be freed up perhaps from some things that others could do that you would help us to be able to focus more precisely in the areas of giftedness and calling. We pray for a special 
um, sense of your presence and your power for these four. And I know, especially for Mark and Anne, this was a, a challenging week, a week that reminded us all of the frailty of our bodies and that our lives really are but a vapor, even as Christ taught us. Pray for your physical strength for our deacons. There will be long days, I'm sure, of ministry and of service. I pray that they would not take their eyes off of you, Father. That you would strengthen and sustain them as you've promised to accomplish what you've called them to do. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Lord, our great desire is that you would be brought more glory and that we would be able to display your grace and your glory to one another and ultimately to the world. And I thank you for setting apart these four servants for that work. And I pray in particular that you would grant them wisdom to know how they can best serve you, serve the church so that it can be more effective in pursuing the purposes for which you've designed it and for which you've designed them and with their various gifts and opportunities and abilities. Give them wisdom to know how they can best serve and serve us. Lord, we also pray for power, that you would strengthen them for the work, that the work and the service that they do would not be done merely in the flesh, merely through the will, but would be strengthened by your Spirit, that it would bear spiritual fruit. That is our aim. We don't want to just do stuff. Lord, we want you to work through us so that your work will be accomplished. And I pray that that you, Spirit, would work mightily in them for the work which you are setting them apart to do. Our Father, we also pray as a church body that that which you have called these four individuals to you would also continue to make it clear to us and, and burn within our hearts a desire to serve that the charge that I gave that we would love you more would not be confined to Mark and Ann and Mike and Nicole, but for each person here, for each believer, whether they're part of our church or not, that they, you would give them a hunger to know you more, that you would help each of us to fall in love with you more that we would love the families that you've gave, given to us, that we would seek to exemplify service within our families, that as a family unit we can also serve others, that we would in our conversation, in our actions, and the time spent and the energy spent, demonstrate to each other within the family and to our children that we love people because Jesus loved us and because Jesus loves people, that we would not judge, that we would not assess that we would not be selfish, but that we would love others. Father, we give you thanks for this church, for the gifts to the church that these deacons are, for how you brought us together and how you continue working in us to make us of one heart and one mind. 
consumed with glorifying You, that our witness to others would genuinely and not just be a slogan or a bumper sticker that the world around us, that other believers would see that church has life because they love one another. They are disciples of Christ because they love one another. May that be true in our body. Again, Father, we thank You for bringing us to today, for blessing us, for giving us all good things, especially for these brothers and sisters that You have brought as gifts to the body and gifts to the pastors. May we join together to glorify You more in the days to come, to remain faithful and allow You to be in charge of the elevation or the the growth that we, that we have, that we would serve knowing that we serve the King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.